Howdy, welcome back to another episode of Canon Calls. I'm excited today to get the opportunity to speak with Chris Wiley, or as some of you may know him, C.R. Wiley. He's got a brand new book out with Canon Press up for pre-order right now called In the House of Tom Bombadil. So for all of you who enjoy the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, you will absolutely enjoy this brand new book from Chris as he seeks to answer what in the world and who in the world is Tom Bombadil, what's he doing in The Lord of the Rings, and why Peter Jackson is really not so great. Find all that out in this interview. Don't forget, canonpress.com, in the house of Tom Bombadil. Pre-order now so that you can get that brand new, beautiful book, Under the Tree, in time for Christmas. Without further ado, meet Chris Wiley. All right, now welcoming on special recurring guest, Chris Wiley. Chris, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to talk today. Yeah, Jake, I'm glad to be here again with you. All right, and today we are talking about your brand new book, In the House of Tom Bombadil, available now for pre-order at canonpress.com. As I was reading through it again, I had the opportunity to, to be in the early stages of editorial with your book a few months ago, and now reading through it for this interview. One thing I, I thought as I was reading through it is that, um, well, delving into theories in, the, in Middle Earth, especially online, and I assume maybe you can tell us also in print, it's a very fraught. People have a lot of opinions. People feel very deeply about the book. What, for you, what made you want to go back in and give people a second look at who Tom Bombadil is? Yeah, well, that's, I, I think the reason is uh, in part what you just referred to, all of the kind of the, the speculation that you see online. Um, I felt like most of it was um, going in the wrong direction or looking at the wrong source material. So like one of the big one of the things that people do when you know, they're wondering, you know, how does this world fit together? You know, Middle Earth, Arda, all that kind of stuff. So they they dive into the legendarium and, you know, they're looking for proof text. That's kind of the way they, they operate. They want to see, okay, what's the, what's the story behind? So they go look, you know, they go in and they look for Bombadil's name or they look for name, other names that they know have been used for Bombadil, like we learn at the, you know, the Council of Elrod. But I, I thought that that was completely the wrong approach. But also I, I think that the right approach is actually very relevant for anyone who's interested, not only in Households, but in, uh, is interested in kind of the the intellectual history of the West. Is interested in the current, I guess, you know, stuff that we see with language. You know, in 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 you know public forums now, where we can't figure out what to call people when it comes to pronouns and <laughs> all that nonsense stuff that that Lewis was talking about in Abolition of Man. All that stuff, I think, is relevant. With regard to Bombadil, if you you are are kind of in tune with or in touch with the kinds of things that interested Tolkien at a professional level and even at a personal level with regard to his politics and that kind of stuff, so if you if you have a sense of you know you know what Tolkien really cared about, then you, it doesn't it's not a, it doesn't take a uh, you know a genius to figure out how Bombadil kind of functions in the story. Uh, and we know that he had a function because, you know, Tolkien 
said so <laughs> in a personal letter. You know, he was being he was asked about Bomb Dill and he said Thomas enigmatic on purpose, but he he serves a function. He if he didn't serve a function, I wouldn't have left him in. And from everything we know about Tolkien's, you know, sort of writing, you know, uh, habits and his approach, if he didn't like Bombadil, if he didn't think Bombadil served a purpose or fit into the story somehow, he would have taken him out because he took all kinds of things out. We've got reams and reams and reams of, of, of you know, first drafts, second drafts, third drafts, where whole sections are just X'd out, you know, and names changed and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's pretty clear that he was left in the story for a reason and he didn't give us an explicit statement regarding that reason, but he's given us a lot to work with in terms of all the rest of the stuff that we can think about in his life and see how Bombadil kind of connects to that. Certainly not in the disposition of, of Tolkien to leave something there willy nilly or, or without, uh, without a good reason. Right. I, I think you're exactly right about Tolkien's intentionality. Now, Chris, I hate to, uh, if you don't already know, there are, there's a group of people out there who only know Middle Earth through the lens of Peter Jackson. Right. And, and for those, for those people, unfortunately, they have no idea what we're talking about or who we're talking about. Right. Right. I feel for those people. I mean, they're they're much poorer, (laughs) much poorer for that. So for that group, could, could you tell us who he is and where in the books, where in the books do we find him? Yeah. Well, in the course of the story, when the, when the hobbits leave the Shire, you know, they they flee uh, and uh, because of the Black Riders and they go into the old forest and they have an adventure in the old forest that doesn't make it into the film. Now, I understand why a filmmaker would need to edit out extraneous material, you know, and sort of keep the plot moving along in a, in a, in a very kind of like, like rifle like way or bullet like way. But um, I think what, what, what you run into when, when you have someone do something like that is there are, there are kind of subtle points that are being made with particular characters. And sometimes those subtle points are actually directly connected to the very large point of a work and help you understand it. And I think that's what we see with Bombadil, but in the old forest, uh, the hobbits come under the uh, influence, really the spell of a malevolent willow tree who nearly kills, you know, three of them. And they're saved by this, you know, character who's just kind of traipsing through the woods, who's able to get them away from the tree. And he brings them to his house and his name is Tom Bombadil. And then when they leave Tom, Tom's house, they, they get into trouble almost immediately again. They find themselves in a tomb captured by a barrel white and nearly, they're nearly killed. And Tom saves them again. So Tom saves them from death twice. And uh, in the course of their time in his house, there's a chapter in the, the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, that is entitled In the House of Tom Bombadil. There's, also, there's a lot of different things that happen in that house. One of the things that happens is that uh, Tom asks t- to see t- the, the ring and Frodo just hands it over to him without hesitation, which in itself is, is noteworthy. But then Tom puts the ring on and he doesn't disappear. And then he hands the ring back to Frodo and everybody is just astonished. And, 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 and just this cavalier approach that Tom has to things related to the ring 
you know, reveals that he's an incredibly powerful character, perhaps the most powerful character in Middle Earth, maybe only exceeded in power by Saran himself. So this is the part of the story where, where they left the Shire, but they're not yet at the, at, at the end where they meet Strider yet. Right, right. Yeah, they're in a bad way. They're, they're very naive. They're wandering around and they come under the influence of these uh, malicious powers. And uh, it's Tom that saves them. Okay, so now there's Tom and then there's, um, and then there's um, a woman, maybe. Yeah, yeah. A woman, maybe, named Goldberry. Yeah, at least she's definitely feminine. <laughs> she's a feminine spirit. She, I think there's a pretty clear connection to the Withywindle, you know, the river there. She's, the, she's referred to as the daughter of the, of the river, of the river daughter. And uh, she's got kind of a um, kind of magical and power, you know, set of, you know, powers, I guess you could say, that are good in the same way that bombadils are good. And uh, she's Tom's wife. So they're, they're childless. They don't have any children. Tom is much older than her. He refers to her as young Goldberry. <laughs> but she's, in terms of her appearance, as ageless as an elf. Although uh, we're told that both Tom and Goldberry are closer, kind of in, in a certain way, to mortal creatures than the elves are. And it's kind of a subtle kind of offhanded remark that Tolkien makes in the, in the narrative along that line. But anyway, uh, she's there with Tom and um, they have a, a beautiful relationship. That's a very unusual one in a certain sense, because they're kind of comic, comically connected. You know, they're almost mis they, they almost seem like a, a poorly matched couple. She's very elegant, graceful. Tom is kind of a capering, you know, sort of comical figure, but they, they, they live together very happily. So I've appreciated so far the verbs that you've used to sort of describe how, how Tom is. Earlier, you mentioned as, as the hobbits were in, in danger, you said that a seeming man came traipsing through the forest. Right, right. And then even just there, you mentioned that uh, Tom was uh, uh, sort of capering right. about. You mentioned that he, Tolkien describes him as enigmatic. He is one of the stranger things as you read him off the page, stranger beings. How, is, how do you think he's enig enigmatic? Or can you describe for us the way that Tolkien uh, describes him? What's he like? Well, it's this apparent kind of uh, incongruity there. I mean, he, he's paradoxically ridiculous and awesome at the same time. <laughs> so, you know, he, he makes you laugh. And he likes laughing with you. He's a jolly guy. But at the same time, it's pretty clear that no one can match him. And that uh, I suspect that Gandalf and Elrod and even Galadriel couldn't match him uh, if, if they ever, you know, they're obviously all good characters. So I don't see why they would ever be at odds with each other. But if uh, they were, Tom, I think, would be indomitable. He, he's just, he can't, well, he's referred to by Goldberry as the master. And that's a very important statement. And, and what she means by mastery is he can't be caught. Uh, he, he's, he's free in a way that no one else appears to be free in the story. Yeah, as you mentioned, in relation to his freedom, earlier you mentioned that for those that have watched the movies, we know that the, the ring has a certain sort of alluring temptation that comes with it. And, and you mentioned earlier that he asked Frodo for the ring, put on the ring, 
and then just handed it back all free and easy like and in a way that uh the other characters you mentioned Elrond, Gladriel and 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 um and Gandalf aren't they're very suspicious uh maybe of themselves around the ring so clearly he's unique among them and actually it had me thinking as I was as I was prepping for the interview and thinking of how Jackson didn't include him but you know what would it have taken to include him and even as I thought about how he would have come off on the screen because I I don't know that we really have a category for someone who is as silly as as Tom is as you mentioned as he comes up he's singing and he's rhyming seeming nonsense and he's just a very silly character but you also have this immense gravitas to him so he's he's a very he's serious but it's not the kind of serious that we're familiar with in fact he kind of reminds in fact I think most people, when they first meet him, would think of that Skittles ad of the berries and cream. Have you seen that Skittles ad, the berries and cream, berries and cream? Uh, I think it's Skittles. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so. Given that seeming paradox, do you think Peter Jackson could have pulled it off, even if he wanted to? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Peter Jackson's. And uh, my suspicion is that one of the reasons why Bombadil was dropped is that is that Jackson really didn't understand certain aspects of the story. So I, I, I think that he would have missed it. I think he would have gotten it wrong. But I think, you know, he got other things wrong too. <laughs> yeah, I almost find myself relieved that the attempt was not even made. Right, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely there, yeah. Now, you mentioned Bombadil is referenced more times than just so you have him saving the hobbits out of the forest and the Barrow Whites. What other... In what other areas is is Tom Bombadil mentioned in the books? Yeah, what are other pla- like what other places are you looking at as you try to put together how Bombadil functions in the story? Yeah, well, there are a couple of well, there are, there are different points in the story after the hobbits leave Tom's house that help you to see that there's something about Tom that's important that needs to be kept in mind, you know, throughout the story. So, with the first place where you see Tom referenced. Again, after they have left the forest and have left Bree and have, have had the episode at Weathertop with the, with the Dark Riders, is uh, at, you know, at that point where Frodo turns, he's fleeing from the Black Riders. He turns and he tells them to go back to Mordor. This is almost at the point where you know, he's passed out and he's, they're nearly to Rivendell. And then the the writers, you know, laugh and say, come back with us, you know, we'll take you and that kind of thing. And then Tolkien says that Frodo's words didn't have the power of Bombadil's. So, okay, that's important to know. There's, an, there's, an, there's another place where Sam is in this very dark spot. He's in Shelob's lair and he refers to Bombadil. He says, you know, something to the effect, I wish Tom were here. And we, did, we have that. So we have these two very dark points in the story. And then we have a couple of uh, brighter spots where Bombadil is referred to. When Gandalf is saying goodbye to the, the hobbits before the scouring of the Shire, I don't think that the scouring of the Shire made it into Jackson's film either. So, okay, so there you go. There's another important episode that doesn't get into the film. But, but at that point, uh, he, he lets the hobbits go and, and address you know, what he knows to be the case in the Shire, which is, you know, Saruman is there and he's taken over, you know, the, the Shire and it's a, and the, the hobbits are going to need to get uh, Saruman out. 
of the Shire. Uh, and then, they, you know, he says, if you want to know where I'm going, I'm going to spend some time with Bombadil. So he's, you know, he's and he, he, he kind of says that now he can sort of do that because he's sort of in the same in the same spot that Bombadil's been in the whole time. And now he, you know, he's going to go and talk to him about things. And the very last scene in the book or near to nearly the last scene. And we see Frodo going into the uttermost West when he's gone to the Grey Havens and he's gotten on the boat and is now sailing into the uttermost West. He passes through a curtain of rain. And when the, when the curtain parts, he can see the undying lands. And he remembers at that moment that he dreamed this very thing in Bombadil's house. And if you go back to, you know, that chapter in the house of Tom Bombadil, sure enough, you see this dream that Frodo has at the very beginning of the story that is a, you know, takes him to the end of the story. So there's something made, there's a connection made here between Bombadil's house and the undying lands. So there's a lot going on uh, with Bombadil throughout the story. And this thread is something that Tolkien wove into the story on purpose. You know, it's always brought up, you know, why didn't you just give the, uh, why didn't the hobbits ride the eagles and they could just they could just toss from the air <laughs> right. the the ring and the book would be over right easy peasy but to tolkien's credit they do in the council of elrond as you mentioned earlier tom is brought up as someone why don't we just give the ring to to bombadil right which would you know obviously be just as simple free and easy end of story uh situation right and i think it's isn't it is it gandalf that says you know they would uh, or, or if you would, he, he, he's nervous that that Bombadil might just actually like misplace it or forget where it was. Yeah, that's what Gandalf says. Uh, Gandalf uh, says, you know, that wouldn't be a good idea. He would misplace it. <laughs> In other words, it's just it would be so uninteresting to him, so worthless that he just wouldn't. He just wouldn't remember he had it. <laughs> that kind of thing. Now, I've never been fully satisfied with with that. And remember, that is Gandalf. So Gandalf knows a lot, but maybe Gandalf doesn't know everything, even, even from, you know, Tolkien's perspective. You know, another thought I had is wanting to just give it to, to Tom and just have him go ahead and take care of the deed himself, go all the way into Mordor. I mean, who could stop him? <laughs> you know, Shilo wouldn't be able to stop him. No one would be able to stop him. He could just walk right in and just you know, dance up the side of the mountain and just drop it in and say, there you go. <laughs> now, maybe, you know, it, we, we are given the impression at the same council that Saran could be Bombadil's match. And, you know, they're talking about that. So maybe that would, you know, you know, would have been prevented by Saran himself. But, you know, anyway, <laughs> that, that's the, uh, that's kind of, that's a, that's a road not taken. And, you know, it wouldn't have been a very great story if it had. Maybe it would have made a really short children's book, <laughs> you know, pictures of Tom dancing around and, you know, destroying the ring. It, it would certainly. Tom just skipping his way up Mount Dune would be uh, an iconic image <laughs> for children's books. <laughs> here, yeah. Here comes happy. Yeah. Happy Tom <laughs> to save the day. <laughs> Not the book that Tolkien gave us. Right. Right. One of I, I, so I love uh, I'm an easy mark for your book because I love books about books and sure I was curious as I as I was going back through this I'm sure that that the uh, that the reading that you did in order to write this book was probably a good time 
I'm curious, did anything come up, uh, and it doesn't even have to be about Bombadil, are there things that came up in your source reading that you thought was really interesting, really fun, anything about Tolkien? So, yeah, the thing that, you know, I found most interesting about Bombadil was uh, the stuff that I could see that Tolkien was doing uh, to address some of Tolkien's theological and philological interests and, and concerns. So Tom is a very significant player in the story from the standpoint of the history of Western thought. There are things that, that, that Tolkien is doing with Tom that is intended to address some things in Western thought that I think uh, C.S. Lewis addresses in other ways, you know, like with the abolition of man or with uh, Paralandra in particular, you know, the second book in the Ransom Trilogy. So I think those are th- those things are going on. And if you want to learn more about what I think, buy the book. <laughs> right. No, I, I don't want you to give up too much, but I, I'm curious, what, what do you see in terms of the question of how Bombadil functions in the story? What do you see is at stake in answering that question? What, what, is that, what could we be gaining or what could we be losing, depending on how we answer that question? Oh, yeah. I think one of the huge things uh, has to do with uh, domination and control, because the ring of power is all about that. And that's precisely the thing that Bombadil has no interest in. And I think the reason he has no interest in it is because he has, a, he has a, access to a kind of wisdom that Saran doesn't possess, uh, Saruman doesn't possess. I think Gandalf possesses it and Elrod and Galadriel, but they're, they're lesser lights. I mean, they're, they're not as I think, uh, knowledgeable as Bombadil. So, you know, it's because of what Tom knows that, you know, it makes it possible for him to exercise dominion in a different way. Yeah. I think as we mentioned earlier, uh, those three characters, especially, and it's probably a credit to their wisdom that they don't, they are not as flippant or as confident as Bombadil is as a, in reference to the ring. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, like when you see, you know, Frodo, I think, uh, you know, he definitely offers the ring to Galadriel, you know, is, you know, you're, you're, you're the sort of person that should have this. And then she's tempted, but then she, she resists the temptation because she knows that she would start using the ring in a way that is exactly the way Frodo ex- would expect her to, you know, in a, in a noble way for good ends. But she knows that eventually she'd be corrupted by the ring. And so that's why she, she resists. And the same with Gandalf. Gandalf resists. Now, Saruman, this is why Saruman, one of the reasons why Saruman is so important in this story, he was a good guy who was corrupted by his desire for the ring. He didn't even need to have the ring in his possession <laughs> in order for him to be corrupted by it. The more he studied the dark arts, the more he came to understand what Melkor and, and Sauron and, and others were up to, the more he was drawn into it himself. So he was corrupted just by longing for the ring. So good characters can go bad. There's something about Bombadil, though, that's qualitatively different. And I, that's one of the things that I try to get into uh, with my, my book. Are, are there any takes out there uh, floating about concerning Tom Bombadil that particularly annoy you? Well, I mean, the speculation that generally, you know, you see on the, on the internet has to do with the legendarium. And it doesn't have to do with Tolkien's professional and, and intellectual interests. That's not surprising. I mean, you'd really have to have a background 
in, you know, the, in Western thought and be comfortable with, you know, classical thought, medieval thought, modern thought. You'd have to know all of that stuff to, to see what he's up to, what Tolkien is up to. For example, let me give you a little, little clue as to what I'm getting at. Uh, it doesn't get too much away. <laughs> this is about that episode with, with Gandalf and Saruman. So Gandalf has been captured by, by Saruman, right? And uh, in the course of their conversation, Saruman presents himself as Saruman of many colors. And uh, because he had been Saruman the white, and then Gandalf, you know, says, I like white better. And Saruman says, you know, it's, it's good for a start. You know, you can, you can write on a white page, you know, you can dye a white cloth, you can break a white light. And then Gandalf says something very important. He says, and then it's no longer white. And he who breaks a thing to know it or to understand it has departed from the path of wisdom. I think that what uh, Tolkien is up to there is he's, he's alluding to Newton's experiments with optics and sort of the whole, the whole kind of um, scientific enterprise, you know, the Baconian science, you know, Francis Bacon, knowledge is power. That's what Saruman is after. Saruman is after power, raw power, not power that's been sort of woven into the fabric of things that are, that's already oriented toward good ends. Tolkien was an, a, a Thomist. He, was, uh, he, he knew his Aristotle. And uh, so in the, in the nature of things, everything has a natural end that it's already directed towards. And the efficient sort of efficient power is already serving a given end. And if you're a Christian, you know that that given end is uh, the will of the creator. So what, what you see in, in sort of this critique of Baconian science is the you know, attempt, and, and Lewis gets into this in The Abolition of Man, uh, the attempt to extract power from its given ends and distill it into a raw form that it can be used to our, the chosen ends of the person who wants to sort of impose his will upon the world. So that's what's going on there in that episode with, with but if you, you didn't know, if you didn't know anything about Newton, you didn't know about Baconian science, if you didn't know any of that kind of stuff, you, it would just go right by you. You wouldn't know. But if you know about that stuff, you're like, I know what Tol- I know what Tolkien's doing here. <laughs> this is so obvious. But anyway. Yeah, it would be like it, it, someone who really enjoys the Narnia series wants to be a children's writer, but totally maybe neglects or disregards that, that Lewis was someone who was obsessed with not only medieval cosmology, but the, the medieval world and what people were like then and how they viewed the world. Yeah, generally, you know, and this is one of the reasons why most uh, sort of aspiring uh, Tolkien wannabes can't do what Tolkien did. It's also why most people who write in sort of the, what they think is the spirit of, of C.S. Lewis can't do what Lewis did. These were, these were men who were masters of the Western tradition, and everything they wrote was suffused with you know, kind of theological, philosophical undercurrents that someone who doesn't have an eye for that stuff just misses. They just get caught up in the, in the fun story, but their stories have no depth. The reason why we can go back and read Lewis and Tolkien again and again and again is because everything they said, everything they wrote in their stories is informed by the riches of the Western tradition. Those guys were, were people who read tons and tons and tons of books and taught through books that, that each made up a little bit of, of what they wrote. Right. And it is very non-utilitarian, right? It was right. very non, um, you know, you read this one book to do that one thing. It's, it's, it's really not utilitarian like that. Well, yeah. And Tolkien, 
despised uh, utilitarian thought. <laughs> he says so in many, many places. And if you have an understanding of, you know, how Tolkien thought about language and why it works the way it does and what it actually is doing, you can understand why he, he started, you know, he wrote a story, but he started with the languages first because he had a, a metaphysic that helped him to see the connection between human words and metaphysical realities that can't be seen. And so he, he, you know, his whole approach is informed by that. This is something I'm sure that went completely, you know, Peter Jackson is just completely missed. I'm sure Peter Jackson has more and more in common with John Stuart Mill than he has with, with Tolkien. So, you know, he, he, you know, he, he admired Tolkien's imagination because, you know, it was, he, and he told a great story and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I would be very surprised if, if Peter Jackson knows very much about, you know, medieval theology or philosophy or class, you know, philosophy that was current in antiquity or any of that stuff. I'm, I'm sure he was just a fanboy like most of the people you see on the internet. I think too, this, this sort of gets at Tolkien's seeming reactiveness to the sort of the Lord of the Rings being written as an allegory. I, I don't, I don't think he, he, he despised the art form of allegory. Um, and I'm, I'm very certain he wrote several, but was more reacting to people that wanted to, once uh, having read The Lord of the Rings, then could just say, this is about World War II, right? He despised that kind of thing, not allegories for their own sake. Yeah. And it was because, um, you know, like you said, he, he, he was not completely allergic to, al- to allegorical writing. I mean, I think Leaf, you know, by Nigel is an allegory. Yeah. When you said he, earlier, when you said he was, he knew as Aristotle, I thought that was quite an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, but, you know, for, for Tolkien, um, allegory is one of the cruder modes for most Christians today, because, you know, even evangelical conservative Christians are more modernist than they know. When they want to write a story, they go directly to allegory because they have no other way of thinking about, you know, the ways fiction or the forms fiction can take to convey a message because their their metaphysics, the metaphysic of a typical evangelical Christian in the United States, had, like I said, has more in common with Jeremy Bentham and uh, John Stuart Mill than it does with Augustine and Aquinas or even Luther and Calvin. Yeah. I, you're, so, yes, to, to materialists, an allegory is probably the most profound thing that you can do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. You need to be you need to be a realist. Uh, and when when you know, typically when an evangelical hears the word realism, they, they think about just physical reality. But a realist in the Western, in the Western tradition, Western thought is a person who believes that unseen things are more real than seen things. And we have the Apostle Paul, you know, give a great definition uh, in, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 of what a, uh, a realist is. A realist is someone who knows that the, seen, the things you see are temporal, but the unseen things are eternal. And, and that's the mode that medieval and, 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 and ancient uh, thinkers often wrote in or thought, in, uh, thought about the world with uh, in terms of. And modern people, including, you know, some very, I mean, good hearted and, and well intentioned evangelicals think in the modern mode, not in the, you know, mode of people in the first century or the mode of the Apostle Paul or any of that. Absolutely. And, and you're going to get really bad literature takes thinking in that mode. 
That's right. That's why that's why when people try to understand Bombadil, they just go to the legendarium and that's and that's where it stops. They don't know how to think about the stuff that I've been talking about. And it's not that they're not smart. It's just they're not they just never have never been introduced to this stuff. Our, the modern education system that we that we you know subject people to, to doesn't uh, introduce them to the sort of things that Tolkien and Lewis and the other inklings took for granted. Yeah, I I was born in in 91 and so thinking for me Lewis has always been something of the deep past but but in all reality of course he wasn't that far away. He's not that far back. That education that he got and and that was sort of uh, assumed as the mode of education that that kind of thing was not that far back. That's right. Yeah, I mean I I Lewis died when I was 1 years old and then um uh Tolkien died when I was like 12. So I, I was alive during the, the you know, <laughs> here's when those guys were alive. But in terms of my own education, you know, I, I had a very thorough introduction to the Western canon. And I mean, I spent a lot of time in, the, in my undergraduate years, you know, uh, in Aristotle, Plato, you know, Anselm, you know, Aquinas. I, I, I was exposed to those guys as, you know, a sophomore in college, a junior in college, and was doing a lot of reading in the, in the you know, source material. You know, I wasn't reading Latin <laughs> and Greek, but I was reading, you know, good translations. And uh, so I, I have a, a tremendous, I, I, not, I don't feel like, like some kind of wonderkind or something like that. I just think I, I was, you know, blessed with, you know, attending a college that hadn't kind of caught up to all the latest fads, I guess, or, or whatever. I was, I was reading the stuff that those guys, probably, probably stuff that those guys read when they were in high school. Yeah, it sounds like you caught. It sounds like you caught the end of of what normal education was like. Right, right. On this side of things, we talk so much about how important this kind of education is, how valuable it is. We're sort of you know selling it on the periphery of ed- the education world when when really that was just sort of how they did it. That was that was education. Right. Yeah. All right. So everyone, go pre-order in the house of Tom Bombadil. It's a really fantastic book. I enjoyed it a lot. It releases mid-December, so pre-order now. That way, the minute we get them in-house, the minute it comes into canon, we will get them out in time to get them under your tree in time for Christmas. Well, and I should say, the, the, the reason it's going to take a bit is, is because we went for a hardcover for it because we loved it uh, so much. Uh, and, and Chris, do you want to tell them about the about the cover sure sure yeah i mean i'm a, I'm an artist i uh was uh, educated as an artist and i had originally intended to be a comic book artist and uh, so you know seeing the way things are going with dc comics and marvel and, the, and those guys these days I'm, I'm glad i'm not <laughs> but but that was my that was, so i uh i i drew the cover you know i was just kind of speculating a little bit on what i think tom can't you know what, what he could look like and I've had some good feedback from other artists about, you know, what I, what I drew. And, and then you guys decided to, to, to take it and run with it. Yep. So that will be on the hardcover portion. And then we have a nice little belly band for it with the title and, of course, the author's name. It's a beautiful cover, a beautiful book. You're going to want it underneath the tree this year. And in the meantime, while you wait for that book, go read The Lord of the Rings. You owe it to yourself to read Tolkien's own words about it. Disregard Peter Jackson. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, read it for yourself. Don't trust Jackson to 
interpret it for you. <laughs> All right, Chris. Thank you so much. I'll see you next month. All right. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake.